Matthew chapter 7 as we deal with, probably didn't know this, I think my least favorite passage in the entirety of the Bible. Yep. Out of all of them. The middle section here is my least favorite out of them all. God's Word written for us today, and I love that. That's why I say it every Sunday, because even when my feelings don't line up, it doesn't matter. It's still God's Word, and it was still written for us today. Starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, you have written for, uh, this for us today. And so we ask that just as you have written it, you would give us the ears to hear Your word, not my word, but yours. And we even ask that you would give faith. For Christ's sake, amen. One of the weird byproducts of being a pastor 
is the way that you get to have friends in the neighborhood. Uh, And by that, I mean it's extraordinarily strange. When people find out that I'm a pastor, the various uh, behaviors that they do, sometimes they immediately decide that they want to confess all of their sins to me, which is extremely uncomfortable when you're at a neighborhood party. I don't want to know. I just came here to have some barbecue and talk to my neighbors. Other times they get angry with me, don't know what to deal with me, how to do how to be friends, how to interact with a pastor, what's a pastor like. And uh, it's interesting how this is certainly my experience, but it's, it's proven, confirmed by the numbers as well. This is one of those weird polls that you probably don't pay attention to, but I pay attention to because it, it uh, explains so much of my interaction with the world. There's been a long-running poll as to uh, clergy's trustworthiness and respectability. And interestingly, in uh, recent memory, it peaked in 1985, where more than two-thirds of Americans, when they were asked about clergy, they said a clergy is by nature highly trustworthy. That that is, it's not even like mostly trustworthy, or what they say is probably good to believe, Highly trustworthy, more than two-thirds of Americans. It was one of the most respected professions in the nation, one of the most uh, trustworthy professions in the nation, and people by default believed what clergy said. It was 1985, more than two-thirds. Last year, 40% said pastors were highly trustworthy. In fact, actually, the Poll's been doing about this number ever since 1985 and in recent years has been tanking even more sharply in uh, the numbers of people who believe them to be highly untrustworthy are increasing at ever surprising rates. And there's, I think, a lot of reasons for this. Uh, Certainly, uh, our kind of cultural moment is one of those, but I suspect there's actually a pretty simple historical explanation 1985 was in many ways the pinnacle of kind of the moral majority in America. And for a nation that was kind of celebrating morality, but perhaps not actually celebrating the Bible, people realized there was a lot of money to be made in the church. Which is why now, if you kind of pay attention to the headlines, it seems every other month or so, there's some pastor that said God told him he needed to buy that airplane. I remember one of the more recent interviews with that, and the gentleman, the pastor's explanation is, well, it was just so cheap. Surely God wanted me to have it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. What a mess. What a mess we've watched happen in uh, our American culture, even in my lifetime. From taking a position of, of authority in God's church, a position that in theory is founded on the Bible, whose job it is to know the Bible, whose task it is to explain the Bible and to erode all credibility, all sense of trust. In that position. It's one of the reasons why now when I talk to people in the neighborhood or whatever and they're immediately distrustful of who I am or how I act, it doesn't offend me anymore. 
Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I'm not, I get it. I'm not mad. Yeah, we got the bozos asking for the airplanes. I get it. I pastored not from a, not, I pastored not far from a church that made you turn over your tax records when you joined the church. So they knew how much you were giving. I understand it. I'm not mad. It's no surprise, in fact, even, that Jesus understood that. He knew what he was talking about because he knew his church and he knew how the world would work. He's the wisest man to ever live and certainly God at the same time. In chapters 5 and 6 and 7 so far in the book of Matthew, we've had Jesus laying out what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And it's been a a slight tension for the listener as he's laid out a a value set that perhaps at first blush you would have found to be a bit surprising. I mean, just how he started. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then even turning from that to a behavior set that's not just dealing with sins of the hands, but dealing with the heart. But if you pay attention to the larger sermon as a whole, he's he's laying out a kingdom that is filled with riches. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, yeah, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the entire earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So much blessing, even from the very beginning. We've been talking about in the middle part of the sermon, he lays out a theology of rewards to say, look, the kingdom of God is is so marvelous that uh, when you serve the Lord, he's generous to give to his people. And I've jokingly said the Lord's interest rate is far better than ours. Now, one of the great mistakes that is made, and I would humbly suggest one of the great mistakes that was made between 1985 and 2019 in American culture, as the trustworthiness survey shows, is that we reduced the blessings to just financial ones. I mean, money's nice, but there are many things much greater. Love, God, His people, Things much greater than money, but there certainly needs to be addressed this idea that the Lord's kingdom that he's laid out here, the kingdom that Jesus is is proclaiming is a, a beautiful kingdom filled with richness, filled with blessing, filled with reward. It is filled with goodness. So it is no surprise that in verse 15, Jesus acknowledges that there are and there will be false prophets. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So on the outside, they look like one of you. Jesus regularly describes his people as sheep. Um, Sheep are marvelous creatures. They're delightful, not always the sharpest uh, of animals, but delightful little critters. Uh, He describes us that way with great regularity. This is what God's people are like. These smelly, slightly unintelligent, marvelous creatures called sheep. But however, be aware that constantly around you and perhaps even in your midst will be the reality of false prophets. Those that look the part, 
But rather than trying to help the sheep, rather than trying to shepherd the sheep, rather than trying to provide safety and food and peace for the sheep, they prey upon the sheep. And if we're Bible scholars that have paid attention, we would know this is a theme that runs all the way back through the Old Testament. It's one of the great themes of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, that uh, the leadership have been preying upon God's people instead of caring for them. It would also be, if you're an excellent Bible scholar, easy to know that almost the rest of the Bible is written specifically to address problems with false teachers in the church. I mean, after you get past Acts, it's pretty much almost all of the rest of the book or of the New Testament writing, addressing false teaching, addressing false prophets, addressing those that pretend to be Christians but are not. And again, it makes sense if you understand biblically what the kingdom of God is, that it's a a marvelous place to be. It's filled with richness. It's filled with blessing. It's filled with all kinds of delightful things. The least of which is probably money. It's no surprise that there would be imposters. We're going to look at these three paragraphs that follow, kind of the illustration Jesus gives in light of this, then the middle portion, my least favorite, gut-wrenchingly hard for me, and then the final one, in looking at kind of what Jesus explains. Uh, we're not going to look at it necessarily only from the perspective of, uh, of false teachers, but looking at really what is Jesus explaining about the reality of faith itself. What is Jesus explaining about his kingdom and himself and his people? So the warning is given in 15. Beware uh, of false prophets. They're going to be here. They're going to live around you and in your midst. Uh, They're going to be really ravenous wolves hidden in plain sight. And their mission will be to consume you. Their mission will be to prey upon you. Their mission will be to destroy you from the inside. It always is just a a great sorrow to me to look at the location of so many of the worst of the prosperity gospel churches. Prosperity gospel is an abomination from hell where the church preys upon her people to take their money and steal it from them. And if you look at the locations kind of geographically of where they are, they're almost always the biggest ones are located in the poorest parts of the city. So not only is the church preying upon their people, but they're preying upon the people that didn't have enough money to waste in the first place. Jesus addresses this and goes to explain, well, okay, what does real faith look like? How do we distinguish between false prophets and real prophets? How do we distinguish between a false pastor and a real pastor? How do we distinguish between a false Christian and a real Christian? Really, he was asking, what does faith look like? Verses 16 through 20 I think it highlights for us to see that that true faith, biblical faith, is transformative because of the Spirit of God. 
It's transformative because of the Spirit of God put in kind of more casual language. It changes you because God is at work. Verse 16, Jesus gives us kind of an agricultural example. Well, how do you distinguish between real faith and false faith? How do you distinguish between uh, true prophets and false prophets? How do you distinguish between a a good pastor, a real pastor, and a a fake one? Well, uh, you look at their fruit. You look at the byproduct of their ministry. You look at the, the byproduct of what they're teaching. Look at the byproduct of how they're living. Why? Well, because you can examine it from the perspective of agriculture to say you can tell the type of plant by the type of fruit it produces. You know, if we're going out into our backyard, we have trees growing in our backyard. We're not producing fruit yet, but we're working on it. And if you were to walk out there in a couple of years and walk over to the apple tree and you know, pluck an apple off and eat it and say, my goodness, what a lovely looking orange tree. Well, no, of course not. You, you could tell. It has fruit. You may not be able to distinguish the leaves, but the apples growing on it would lead you to believe it's an apple tree. Likewise, when it comes time to evaluate ministers and prophets and even Christians in general, you would look and say, well, what kind of fruit is being produced? Is it the fruit of heaven? Is it the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is it the fruit of God's ministry? Or is it the fruit of poison and death and the world? This is a, an illustration that is common in Jesus' ministry. It's more often used by John than Matthew. But he's highlighting that when God changes a person, when God works in their heart, he changes their very essence. He changes their very nature. Right to, to, to read a passage like this and say, well, Christians do good things and unbelievers do bad things is to totally misunderstand the passage. What Jesus is saying is, look, as, as being a part of the kingdom of God, being changed by God, it alters your very nature. And the change in your nature produces a change in behavior. What does real faith look like? Well, it looks like it's flowing from a person that has a different nature. That has been altered. That's been made new. That's been, other language from the Bible, brought from death into life. It's not what is so often kind of lampooned or ridiculed in American culture to say that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's a terrible misunderstanding of Scripture. It's a terrible misunderstanding of what it means to understand the gospel. The idea that good people go to heaven and and bad people go to hell presumes that we're the good people. Would then make a really poor bit of sense that we would have a confession of sin every week, wouldn't it? Would make a poor bit of sense that we would need a promise of pardon every week, wouldn't it? 
It would make a poor bit of sense that we would have to confess our faith saying, what is my hope in life and death? It's not in my good works. It's in my Savior, Jesus Christ. True faith, it it changes a person because it's not about the person. It's about the God who works. It's about the Spirit of God. You see, in light of this, the the hope that we have is, again, not even in our own uh, excellent deeds. It's in the Spirit that lives inside me and changes me. So the things that I used to do, I don't want to do anymore. And even my desires change to match the Bible more. So I don't live the way I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. I live differently, but that's not my hope. My hope is in the God who's changed my very nature. Verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every diseased tree bears bad fruit. Can a healthy tree bear bad fruit? (laughs) Nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. No, Jesus is acknowledging that the difference is not in the works necessarily, uh, primarily. The difference is in the, the nature of the tree. Is it a healthy tree? Is it an unhealthy tree? Is it a diseased tree? Has the spirit worked in the heart of the person? Verse 19 is where it gets a little bit perhaps uncomfortable. Because Jesus acknowledges that these two different trees have two totally different ends. Those that have been transformed, that have a new nature, that are filled with the Spirit of God, that have God working within them, that can claim Christ as their hope, well, those trees produce good fruit and they flourish and they blossom and they are a part of God's kingdom forever. However, the other trees, well, they're useless. Instead, they get cut down and used as firewood. Instead, Jesus is here highlighting the nature of judgment. Those that don't have real faith, those that don't know the living and true God, their end is not good. It's not that everybody gets the the good ending to the story. Their end is destruction. Wrath. True faith changes a person not because of the person, but because of the God that lives in the person. If the Spirit resides inside His people, well, they will live differently. And 21 through 23 lay out a, a separate problem. Again, imposter syndrome of a different kind. Here, uh, Jesus kind of changes the scene from an agricultural illustration to a kind of um, almost fanciful uh, presentation of the end times, of judgment day as a conversation that takes place between Jesus, who is the judge of, uh, of the earth and some of the people from earth. And they have this incredibly just 
heart-wrenching conversation. Jesus presents this in saying, not everyone who says to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he presents this kind of uh, imaginary conversation where they're at uh, the very last day on judgment day and Jesus Christ, who is the judge of heaven and earth, he's, he's there and uh, a person is presented before him. And when they're getting ready to try to go into the afterlife and to go into the kingdom of God, go into heaven, they say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, look, just because you said magic words, that doesn't mean anything. Just because you use my name like some sort of kind of magic incantation, that doesn't mean anything. Just because you repeated a prayer when you were four years old doesn't mean anything. Magic words don't save the day. In fact, actually, verse 22, it gets worse. Not only do these people in this imaginary setting say, Lord, Lord, but then they begin to explain more of what they did. Worse yet, this is the impression is that this is probably a a pastor who's speaking. Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And again, for many, if we were going to go to try to evaluate a pastor's ministry, we would say, hey, preaching in Jesus' name, casting out demons, and doing mighty works, that's a win, isn't it? Many pastors would say, look, if that's what my tombstone said, it'd be a great life. Preached in Jesus' name, cast out demons in Jesus' name, did mighty works in Jesus' name. That's a win, isn't it? Interestingly, what's the response that Jesus gives them? Verse 23, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. It's brutal. Again, an imaginary setting told here, but brutal is what's happened is this person who's coming here and appealing to the Lord in the last day, and again, this imaginary situation, uh, it doesn't get in. And the reason being is, again, it's a little bit of a uh, kind of a... uh, A slight detail in the grammar, but extremely important, is when Jesus is presenting, he's putting words in their mouth for why they should go to heaven. The interesting thing is all of the grammar is centered around their works. Why should you go to heaven? I preached in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did mighty works in your name at the end of the day. Why should I go to heaven? Because I did things in your name. Friends, this is the pastor equivalent of the average American answer. Well, I don't know why I go to heaven. I'm probably not a good person, but I'm better than everyone else. Right? My neighbor on that side's a loser. That person can't cut their grass. Have you seen their family? It's a mess. They're all terrible people. I'm better than all of them, and so I go to heaven because of that. 
It's an appeal to me. That I'm smarter, that I'm funnier, that I'm whatever it is, I'm more than they. And the interesting thing is that's the one that Jesus responds with, depart worker of lawlessness. You're on the wrong side. Because the kingdom that you're building is all about you. It's all about your little castle. It's all about your yard. It's all about your children. It's all about your spouse. It's all about your home. It's about your food. It's about your pleasure. It's about your wealth. It's all about you. What's the key element missing? (laughs) They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know him. There was was no personal relationship. There was no intimacy of of character, of person, of knowledge, of love. Instead, Jesus' name becomes for them some sort of kind of magic ritual that will make things better. If only they would do it. You can understand why this is my least favorite passage in the Bible. Having grown up in the South, having conducted most of my ministry along, actually almost all of my ministry along the Bible Belt or on the buckle of the Bible Belt, it has for most of my life been a very rare thing to meet people who have no knowledge of God or at least don't pretend to be Christians. It's increasingly more common now and refreshing every time. Enjoy it, people who know what they believe and are comfortable saying it. But so much of my ministry has been conversations with people that I have this lurking in the back of my mind where it's they don't know the name they use every Sunday. They recognize the name, but they don't recognize the person. A couple of months ago, I got the opportunity to uh, pick up a person from the airport, and he and I had been talking over email and over the phone for a number of months. I had had multiple hours of conversations with this uh, gentleman, but when I went to pick him up, it was funny. Neither of us knew what the other person looked like. I knew his name. I could recognize his voice. Couldn't tell you anything about him in terms of what he actually was. So when we went to meet each other, we had to like text, this is what I'm wearing, this is where I'm going to be, this is what I look like, please pay attention to this person. Unfortunately, I, f- I fear that too many that even really grow up in the church, this is our reality. We know about the name Jesus. We might even be able to explain uh, systematic theology or what the Bible even says, but we don't know it in our heart. True faith first is transformative. It changes the person because the Spirit of God lives within them. Secondly, true faith is is realized in knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just belief in God's word. It's not just obedience to his commands. It is in knowing God. 
And again, I, I struggle with this one so much as even when we talk about heaven, to think about how many times we talk about heaven from even selfish perspectives. I can't wait to not sin. I can't wait to not cry. I can't wait to not hurt. And we forget, I can't wait to be with Jesus. The content of my faith. Next section, Jesus changes from first an agricultural illustration, second a a kind of parable of the last days of Judgment Day, and here turns to uh, construction industry. Jesus, very, very learned, uh, interesting thing here, turns to a construction illustration. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice, who does them, well, it's going to be like a wise man, and he gives a building illustration. Two people build a house. One finds the proper location. He clears off the dirt on the top, gets rid of the gravel, finds the bedrock, and puts the house directly on the bedrock so that it has something stable to rest upon. The other one, well, just builds a house. Obviously here, building is the idea of spending your life, how you live your life, how you uh, use the days that God has given you. They're limited. You don't have forever. They might end in about 10 minutes. You never know. How will you spend your days here? Two different ways the days are spent. One founded upon the rock, the other not. And guess what happens? Uh, Judgment comes. Here it's presented in the form of wind and rain and floods. Judgment comes. And interestingly, when you talk about perfect sermon illustrations, this church knows exactly what that looks like. Just a matter of months ago, we had big winds come, and guess what happened? All the trusses in the new building fell in. Praise God, the workers were able to get out and get to their car, because had they been there where they were two minutes prior, what happens? They all die. They all die. It's interesting here, Jesus is presenting a a contrast between those that listen to him and obey him, those that, again, are in submission to him. That's actually the key element here. What does biblical faith look like? That first paragraph, it changes us, it transforms us because the Spirit is living within us. The second one, it's, it's personal, it's an intimate relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship where we know Him and He knows us because the Spirit of God accomplishes us. Here in this third one, it's not a peer-to-peer relationship. It's not that Jesus and I are equals. We come into this as partners where I can tell him things and he can tell me things and I listen to him and he listens to me. No, instead, it's my relationship with the Lord is one of obedience and submission. Where my life is built upon his word, my life is built upon his truth, my life is built upon his reality and it rests on that. why I love the Heidelberg Catechism, why we confessed it twice in the last month and a half or so. What is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, I don't belong to myself. It's not my life. I belong to Jesus. 
And this Jesus has satisfied all of my sins. He's paid for them. He's redeemed me from the power of the devil. This Jesus is the one who takes care of me. This Jesus is the one who preserves me. This Jesus is the one who uses everything in my life for my good and for his glory. This Jesus is the one who will take me to heaven. I'm submitting to him. Because I'm not his peer, he's my God. Very briefly, I would make a couple of applications. First and foremost, I would turn to the children of the church, students of the church, youth group of the church. There's a great temptation and a great danger that these describe you. Where you grow up hearing about Jesus... And you grow up reading about Jesus, but you never know him. And I would challenge you, don't be that person. Talk to mom and dad, talk to your parents, talk to your siblings, talk to your elder, talk to me. You need to know Jesus Secondly, parents, many of us have spent much of our lives in the Bible Belt, and the application is no different for you. Don't spend your life being in the proximity of salvation, but never having it. Being in the proximity of Jesus Christ, but never knowing him. Don't spend your life being near the gospel, but not believing it. And then lastly, I think ultimately what Jesus is getting at here with these false prophets and such is that what does the kingdom of God ultimately really look like? It's a kingdom, of, it's a kingdom that, that's focused, a church that's focused on who God is and what he's done. I'll be honest with you, we spend so much time thinking about ourselves and nowhere near enough time thinking about our Savior. I suspect many of our problems would either go away or get really small. If we spend a little bit more time marveling at the God who has done this, even today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus who redeems us from our sin. Thank you for the Spirit who applies that to our lives and who will faithfully preserve us to the end. Again, I marvel at the Spirit's ministry. What a terrible job to have to live within my heart, know all of the misery that is there, and cleanse it and correct it. And I thank you for him. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask that you would fix our minds upon him. For Christ's sake, amen.